Today I'm looking at a book called Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything by Victor Stretcher. This book was mentioned in a book I talked about last time, which is called Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with a New Science of Success by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. They reference this book in a few different ways. So I went and picked it up and read it and thought I'd talk about it today. For some reason, I got really carried away in my preparation for today. So <laughs> I'm going to kind of walk this book from beginning to end. It was a very curious book in the sense that it covered a lot of different things and weaves in a lot of different disciplines. So everything from neuroscience to astrophysics to uh, philosophy to, uh, Victor Frankl to Nietzsche to like, it just kind of Aristotle. It just runs the gamut. So this book is mentioned by, in the peak performance book in the context of Vic Stretcher's own experience of losing his daughter when she was 19 years old. She had been she had gotten chicken pox or some some fairly benign illness when she was little and it affected her heart and so she had two heart transplants before the age of 19 and then died suddenly at 19 and in his grieving process this whole notion of having a life purpose and knowing what you're living for kind of really becomes his thing. He's a university professor and a researcher. And so helping people find and understand the importance of having a life purpose is his life purpose. So maybe before we start here, something to think about is what is your initial reaction when someone says that they have a quote life purpose? I know for myself, even though I'm involved in all this personal development work and I find it really fascinating, energizing, sometimes it does sound kind of cheesy or kind of like, you know, you kind of want to roll your eyes like, oh, they have a life purpose or, you know, they they have a higher calling. Like, wouldn't it be nice if I had one? I don't. You know, maybe it's an eye roll. Maybe it's interest. Maybe it's skepticism as to whether it's possible or not. One way or another, I do find in the coaching work that I do, that the conversation usually does get around to exploring a person's life purpose because it really does give focus to the work we're doing together and really, really helping them kind of get aligned with where they want to go, you know, that notion of true north. So for some people, it's easy and obvious. For others, like myself, it's kind of a long process. Usually it starts with getting really clear on what your personal values are, your inclinations, your preferences, those things that you absolutely love to do, and then tying them together in some way that is something bigger, something that you can live for or that kind of encompasses that thing that you do really well or that thing that you just love to do. I think it can also be particularly useful to do this process with someone because a lot of times it's hard to get out of our own way. Someone else can have insights and that objective view 
of us that sometimes is really hard to have ourselves. Coach is a great way to approach figuring this kind of stuff out. The one thing that I've always wondered about, and, and you'll hear people take very strong stands on this in the personal development space, which is, you know, every some people will assert that, you know, every person is born with a very specific purpose and that that is why they are placed on this earth. Kind of the idea that everyone comes with a purpose. I don't know. I've always kind of wondered about that. You know, does, like, how do we know that? Do they really? And this book helped me to realize it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. If we do come with a purpose, great. If we don't, but we go seek to find one or, you know, figure out what those that purpose is that's kind of innately ours, great. But in the end, it really doesn't matter because as Stretcher points out on page 16, there's a ton of benefits to having a purpose. And it sounds kind of obvious, but it, I think this kind of puts more color around it. Starting on page 12. In research studies, purpose in life is usually measured with statements such as, I have a sense of direction and purpose in life, and some people wander aimlessly through life, but I'm not one of them. Respondents then typically assess these statements using scales that range from 1 to 7, and the responses to, these, to each statement are combined to form an overall index of purpose. Studies using these measures demonstrate that people reporting a strong purpose in life, on average, live longer than those with a weak purpose. A recent study followed over 7,000 middle-aged American adults from 14 years found that even a one-point increase on a seven-point scale of purpose resulted in an over 12% reduced risk of dying. This result wasn't conditional on the person's age or whether they'd retired. Importantly, general measures of happiness or sadness did not influence risk of death, nor did they affect the impact of purpose in life. I spend my days at work studying the factors that make us healthy or unhealthy. Together, tobacco use, a poor diet, inactivity, stress, and other lifestyle factors contribute to roughly half of disease and early death. The media is filled with messages about these issues, but far less is written about lack of purpose in life. Yet based on the current evidence, it contributes at least as much to disease and death as do these other factors. So let's look at other evidence testing the benefits of having a strong purpose in life. In a study of over 1,500 adults with heart disease, following the, followed for two years, every one-point increase on a six-point purpose-in-life scale resulted in a 27% lower risk of suffering a heart attack. In a study of over 6,000 adults for four years, every one-point increase on a six-point purpose scale resulted in a 22% reduced risk of a stroke. Then on page 14, there's also some research around Alzheimer's disease. At the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center, Patricia Boyle and her colleagues followed over 900 seniors for seven years looking for the incidence of Alzheimer's. The results were startling. Over that period, seniors with a low purpose in life were 2.4 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than those with a high purpose in life. In a separate study, the same research team found a slower progression of the disease among those who developed Alzheimer's and had a high purpose in life. From there, Stretcher kind of goes back to the origins of having a purpose. Like, where is it that we came up? Where, where did we come up with this notion of having a purpose in life? I found this section very confusing. I reread it, I don't know, three or four times to see if I could summarize it well for the podcast here. And I 
just wasn't able to do that. So I'm going to just kind of give you the rough pieces that I have here and hopefully it makes some sense. Before I get there, he also in this section seems to be playing with the tension between the ideas that philosophers are permitted to ask the big questions, but that is suggested by Lawrence Krauss, only science can answer them. What's interesting about this book is he doesn't come down hard on one side or the other. He's more just kind of stirring things up and pointing out the tensions between these things. He looks all the way back to Aristotle. And with Aristotle, Aristotle, I guess, introduced the notion that of human agency, that we can control some aspects of the future. And Aristotle's assertion was that our purpose is to pursue happiness. Now, what I thought was interesting about this was the simple, when we think of happiness today, happiness in Aristotle's time was defined a little bit differently. So on page 26, hopefully this makes sense and hopefully I'm pronouncing some of these fancy words correctly. Aristotle used an odd word to describe the connection with the true self, idemonia. And this word is the term daemon, which means the true and most divine. Who knows my pronunciation is correct? D-A-I-M-O-N. The Greeks thought every person had an inner daemon and that we should find and live in harmony with it. The concept of a true self that transcends one's ego, focused desires, is found in many Western and Eastern religions as well as in more modern psychological approaches. The happiness attained by the self-transcending state of eudaimonia, Aristotle asserted, may be contrasted with self-effacing hedonia, which, as you might expect, concerns hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure derived from gratifying short-term desires. He understood that we all seek hedonic pleasure, but unlike many of his fellow philosophers, such as Epicurus, he warned against the excess of it, stating that many the most vulgar would seem to conceive the good and happiness as a pleasure. Here they appear completely slavish, since the life they decide on is a life for grazing animals. He goes on a little bit later, uh, the stretcher does. Uh, We reduce our definition of happiness to the dopamine experience of pleasure. Eudaimonia sounds like a bit more work. And do we really have time to consult our inner demon to explore the direction we're taking in our lives? The philosopher David Norton asserts that, quote, most of us today have no sense of an oracle within. Turning our backs to the void, we become infinitely distractible by outward things, prizing those that demand our attention. We secretly treasure the atmosphere of the world crises for the mental ambulance chasing it affords. Meanwhile, we armor ourselves with mirrors to deflect the inquiring eyes of others. Something to think about there. And then on page 32, he starts looking into what exactly is purpose in life. Quote, so what is the ultimate purpose of human activity? Is it just, be, is it just being nice? No. Eudaimonia requires self-discovery of the things you care most deeply about and that transcend your immediate desires, of the people you most want to emulate, of the legacy you want to leave, of your purpose in life, of the habitual actions leading to the fulfillment of this purpose. This process may be likened to leaving your old town and embarking on a journey. You jump into your boat and sail into new uncharted sea toward a better harbor. It goes a little deeper on this on page 40. So to reduce the concept of purpose to its simplest elements, I suggest thinking of it as a high-order goal that has deep value. 
towards the bottom of that page. A purpose in life can be not just difficult, but actually unattainable. In fact, mine is. I don't ever expect to announce, mission accomplished, I'm going to Disney World. Won't happen. I don't expect to help everyone in the world create a purpose in their lives or to teach every student as if they were my own daughter. I'd like to, but it's probably beyond my grasp. Nevertheless, my aspirational, unattainable purpose in life keeps me very engaged. So let your purpose be big, lofty, even outrageous. I want to wake up in the morning with my purpose foremost in mind and go to bed at night knowing that I've worked to it, knowing that I've worked toward it. Did I help others create purpose in their lives? Did I spend enough quality time with my students, with my wife? Did I take time to enjoy the, my walk to work? If not, I've got some explaining to do to myself. Then he kind of goes into the whole idea of values that I talked about a little bit ago. And then he brings in Nietzsche. He brings in 2001 Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's famous film, Where Do Value? Then he talks about values and where they come from. This is where it gets really philosophical and kind of scientific. This is on page 45. Nietzsche's influence on Kubrick is apparent in an interview conducted the same year as 2001, A Space Odyssey, was released. Quote, The most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it is hostile, but that it is indifferent. But if we can come to terms with this indifference, then our existence as a species can have genuine meaning. However vast the darkness, we must supply our own light. That sounded really depressing to me. Uh... <laughs> If, if the universe is completely indifferent. I don't think it is. Uh, although I fully realize that opinions on that vary. The mention of 2001 encouraged me to dust off some really old CDs and I came across and I found uh, Richard Strauss's also Sprock Zarha. <laughs> How do you say this? Zarhatustra. I had to look that up on the internet and I still don't think I got it right, but there it is. Anyway, the very famous music. And so the side note here is I have been collecting a playlist of music that I find gets me fired up. It's like my fired up or ready to go playlist. I've started playing this song to start work blocks or I don't know, just a very, just a very, like I turn up really loud with the headphones or speakers in the car and just, it, it's just, Definitely the beginning of something. If you haven't played with using music to kick things off, change your mood, change your state, can't say enough about it. Play with it. You might find something good there. So continuing to kind of follow the path of the book, uh, then there's a section fairly short, about three pages on creating your own life purpose. Again, I think there are more rigorous approaches that I would recommend, but if you've never done it, any place is good to start. Uh, you know, similar, I think actually the process in the peak performance book was maybe a little more rigorous, but you know, give it a shot. So in the interesting directions that this book takes, next he looks at the topic of self-transcendence and the notion of doing things for someone or something bigger than ourselves, that purpose that we develop transcending ourselves. And then uh, delving into Viktor Frankl, John Wooden, Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Adam Grant, among others. Then 
as again, he's so his daughter has suddenly died at 19 and he's trying to make sense of this prior to her death during her second heart transplant. She had died for all intents and purposes. And it's his belief that there was a miracle and she came back to life. And so he's struggling with what, what happened? What do I call this thing? Cause he doesn't consider himself to be a religious person he doesn't consider himself to be an atheist, but he's just anyway. So he reads uh, C.S. Lewis. He reads all kinds of different people to delve into this whole idea of miracles. And again, this is where I just think it, the book is kind of an interesting capture of his kind of struggle with the tension between hardcore science, uh, the emptiness of the universe, the ambiguity of God, miracles. So I'll read um, from page 82 from the book. So he relates this on page 82 in the book. When Jerry, that's his wife, arrived, we waited silently for another hour in a private room. The doctors finally came in, sat down, and told us that Julia's heart had stopped beating on its own six times over the past two and a half hours, sometimes for as long as 15 minutes. This is during the surgery or the procedure that she's in for. After a series of tests, the neurologist found that Julie was completely unresponsive to light or any stimulus and was probably severely or completely mentally impaired. Her organs were beginning to fail and they were quite certain that she wouldn't make it through another arrest. With our consent, a do not resuscitate order was placed at her bedside. When we were finally brought to see our daughter, Jerry said, she's gone. She's not in there. I agreed. Julie's dilated eyes were wide open, staring at nothing. Only the respirator kept her chest moving. Her skin was blue, and there were still tubes running in and out of her iodine-stained body. She had large burn marks from the defibrillation paddles used to, con to continually restart her heart. A curtain was closed around us, and we whispered goodbye to our daughter. He goes on to talk about that his wife had the presence of mind to uh, make arrangements for uh, donating her organs, and they come back kind of one last time to say goodbye to her and they notice that she's moving. And so Jerry, his wife walks over and starts talking to her and she responds to the movements. And then Vic does the same thing. And, you know, uh, I think, I think one of them says, you know, do you need to go to the bathroom? Squeeze my hand if you need to go to the bathroom. And she squeezes their hand. And so one thing leads to another and they realize, oh my goodness, like she's not dead and they are able to resuscitate her and bring her back. And three days later, she's able to play Bach on the electronic keyboard she's been playing with in the hospital. Vic Stretcher is convinced that he's witnessed a miracle and goes on this quest. And then he brings in another interesting um, scene from the movie P Pulp Fiction Never seen the whole movie myself, but he, I guess the, the character Jules, who believes the scene, he goes into an apartment where I guess someone completely unloads a gun on him and doesn't hit him. And he thinks it's, you know, divine intervention, and his partner just thinks it was an accident or chance that he wasn't hit. Then he travels the path of asking whether or not God is necessary to have a purpose in life or for a life purpose. And then kind of back to this original idea that I mentioned, you know, some people believe that God has created each person for a distinct purpose, and that's why we're here. 
And he weaves kind of back and forth in a way that I wasn't able to quite follow. But he concludes with this. I'm not an atheist. I claim neither faith nor disbelief in a God, which I guess makes me an agnostic. As a scientist, I can live in a world that I can't comprehend. I'm used to this lack of comprehension and have spent much of my life reducing it. I know many scientists who are very religious, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and others, and many who are not. In my experience, not all scientists who believe in God are stupid, and not all atheists are brights, as Richard Dawkins likes to call them, perhaps a tad smugly. Dawkins, to me, is like an ant telling his fellow ants that they can use the method of observation and testing to better understand the true nature of the universe. To a very limited extent, yes. But remember, they're ants. Similarly, religious zealots are like ants telling everyone that the great ant in the sky who has a special plan for them. They don't know this. They're ants. I guess that's how he kind of concludes his view on all this. And then the next paragraph, which I think also fits in. Like many scientists, I believe that the science... Like many scientists, I believe that scientific methods can make our ant-like lives better, but I also believe that these methods have their own limitations due to our ant-like inability to comprehend the larger reality of the universe. We fail, for example, to comprehend even the miracle of our own existence. And if the different paths of this book uh, haven't sounded interesting enough so far, next, (laughs) he delves into the area of energy and willpower energy like you know our focus kind of energy focused in the way when we're in the right way we're not when we're not multitasking and then willpower you know the whole fairly popular in neuroscience today um talks about that as well but then he ties a few different things together that have to do with purpose so he posits that there's a reciprocal relationship between, and if you think of this as kind of moving from left to right, so we've got the word purpose on the left. Purpose has a reciprocal relationship with energy and willpower. And then energy and willpower, so that would be kind of in the middle. And then on the far right, you'd have, they have an energy and willpower have a reciprocal relationship with sleep, Presence, activity, creativity, and eating. I think where he's kind of going with this is that to fulfill and have and achieve our purpose, we need energy and power. And that energy and power comes from sleep, presence, activity, creativity, and eating. So I'll run through these really quick. Some of these were interesting. Some of these I've heard uh, in other places. He's got some interesting ideas just to kind of jog your mind or challenges to whether you're doing any of them or should do some of them. So let's see under sleep. That one was pretty um, obvious. Get lots of it. That was actually one interesting thing from the peak performance book that I don't think that I mentioned was the amount of sleep that they're found, I guess, with these extreme athletes is that not only do they train extremely hard, but some of them are trying to sleep extremely hard. So like extremely hard is in like 10, 11, 12, 13 hours of sleep a night to fully rest their bodies. So their sleep, presence, uh, being in the now. I thought this was interesting. He's quoting John Kabat-Zinn. So John Kabat-Zinn, a leading researcher of mindfulness practices, 
defines presence as, quote, paying attention in a sustained and particular way on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. This is exactly what I felt when talking to Tenzin Paradarshi and Vale with my guru in northern India. The word mindfulness is often used to describe this feeling, but as discussed previously, presence really occurs when your mind is empty and you're completely attentive to what's going on right now. The right now could be the conversation you're having with someone else. It could be a mantra, a simple word, phrase, or sound you're repeating. It could be your breathing. It could be the cadence as you walk. The next one being activity. So this also creates an acronym called SPACE. So we've talked about sleep, presence, the next one, the third one, activity, physical activity, moving your body, uh, monitoring, like monitoring devices in a way that is positive. I have had a, I don't know, a Fitbit and now I've got a Garmin watch that uh, it's it's like a running watch, but I don't run. (laughs) But just wearing this watch encourages me and reminds me to keep like looking for excuses to walk. And Sometimes I hit my 10,000 step goal and sometimes I don't, but just by nature of, of wearing it, I'm often reminded to go for a walk or even if it's after dinner and I've got, you know, 15 minutes, I'll go for a walk. He also talks about other ways to, to, you know, stay moving. If you're meeting someone for coffee, get the coffee to go and go for a walk. You know, I've done this, I meet a friend at a particular location and then we'll walk 30 minutes and then get lunch and then walk back uh, or have a walking meeting. I've done some of the most boring conference calls in the world while walking. Not ones that I was leading, but if you have to part, if you have to be listening to them. Also, bonus points: if it's a conference call that's really frustrating or makes you mad, uh, walking is great because you have those. I'll have, I've done it. I've had these kind of hits of frustration, but because you're exercising, that stuff just like it just kind of dissipates a lot easier than it would normally. Another idea I got from another podcast, uh, Stephen Worley's original podcast, uh, Unstuckable. I'll find the link to it. Yeah, this is a great story. I think the guy's name is Charlie something. And this guy, instead of meeting people for coffee, he meets them to play Frisbee. So you're getting activity. I even did that with my neighbor one day in the afternoon after listening to the podcast. He's a policeman, so he's often, and he works later in the day, so he's often home in the afternoons. And so I knocked on his door and I said, hey, you want to play Frisbee? And we had fun just throwing the Frisbee around for the for an hour on the street. You know, two middle-aged guys throwing the Frisbee. It was even funnier. His wife came home from work and uh, he's like, John and I are having a play date. The second to last one is creativity. Uh, several, he had several different bullets and ideas on how to be more creative, <laughs> including ending the chapter with a recipe on how to barbecue a whole chicken with some bricks, which sounded kind of interesting and then ties into the next chapter which is on eating and so we're almost at the end i promise so the last section of the book is is kind of focused on the notion of resilience and so the start of section four is titled learning to sail and chapter 13 is called sailing through storms and he has a fantastic quote here from david foster wallace learning how to think really means learning how to exercise control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how to construct meaning from experience. Because if you cannot or will not exercise this kind of choice in adult life, 
you will be totally hosed. That's from a commencement address that he gave in, I believe, 2005, which is from a book titled, I believe, This is Water, which I highly recommend. I, I picked that up at the library recently, and it was a very profound, quick read that I would recommend. Yeah, here it is. David Foster Wallace, This is Water. Some Thoughts Delivered on a Significant Occasion About Living a Compassionate Life. 2000. Well, the book came out in 2009, but I believe the commencement address was 2005. And so that has me thinking that there's another book I've got in the works here called Wrapped by Winifred Gallagher, which she's a cancer survivor and basically was inspired to write her book on Wrapped, which is basically the experience of our lives is determined by what we focus our brains on. Where do our minds spend the most time? That's what our lives become about. I'm really, really taken with that idea. So I'll be reading that book and hopefully giving a little uh, report on it here someday. So in this chapter on resilience, well, the so the chapter is selling through life storms, but there's a section here on resilience. And he talks about what lessons can be drawn from these different studies that he talks about previously on purpose and resilience. First, it's our interpretation of an approach to our past that generates resilience. I'm quoting. The existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre went even further, saying that not only that we interpret our past, but that this interpretation flows from what, we, what he called our, quote, fundamental project, basically our purpose in life. And then secondly, he says, resilience occurs when you stop being afraid and start being yourself. And then continuing a little further on, studies have shown that first affirming core values reduces a fearful response to a threat. I have definitely seen this in my own work uh, with myself and with clients when faced with a difficult situation where they got really clear on reaffirming their personal values. And then going into a difficult situation with those values in mind and their intention to honor those values, it changed the course of the conversation and the situation. Thirdly, traumatic events that shatter one's world can also lead to a re-examination of one's perception of the world. This can be a good thing. None of us wants to be shattered, whether from illness, divorce, losing a job, or losing a loved one, but this trauma can let us see things from a fresh perspective, allowing us to repurpose our lives. And finally, purposeful living is for everyone, regardless of socioeconomic status. It's well established that societies poor and disadvantaged suffer more from chronic physical and mental illnesses than do its rich and advantaged Everyone experiences stress, but being poor means having fewer responses to cope with it. Studies have shown that the effects of poverty and racism can actually reduce one's ability to deal with stress. But as the aforementioned stories illustrate, this isn't the case for everyone. What makes the difference? And then he goes and examines that. And, and in his examination, it kind of comes back to that they're in pursuit of a goal, whatever that goal might be. And that's what keeps them focused and gives them meaning. And finally, in closing, page 239, kind of summarizing. So what do we know? And he says, and what's the verdict? 
I think we have enough evidence to support the following conclusions. A strong transcending purpose in life is good for your health. And then he kind of closes things out by summarizing the different highlights that I've already pointed to. And I like this way that he, he kind of closes things out on page 243. We are who we choose to be. So we should be very careful who we choose to be. During the course of our lives, we're likely to struggle with decisions over a career, fret over a boring job, hope to re-engage with our partner, wonder what to do when our teenager stays out till 3 a.m., attempt to enjoy Thanksgiving when sitting next to our jerk of a brother-in-law, and try to figure out how to live to and live through a ripe old age. A purpose driven by self-transcending core values isn't a panacea, but it can provide guidance with the choices we make throughout our lives. Whether it's one's career, engaging in a job, reaffirming a wedding vow, understanding a teenager, finding shared values leading to an interesting conversation over turkey and mashed potatoes, and tolerating, perhaps even enjoying, old age as opposed to becoming George Bernard Shaw's feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances. There you have it. Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything by Victor Stretcher. Be curious to get any of your thoughts you have about life purpose. Do you have one? Do you think they're necessary? Do you think they're silly? Love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. If you have questions or ideas around the podcast, send those to podcast at johnpolster.com. 